we didn't find out then and there. So she collided into another car. Wow. So, so pretty much people would think that it's a car accident. Um, it actually wasn't until years later, and I think that's when I had my own mental health problems, is that I actually got told that it was suicide and our whole family knew besides us kids. What is up, beautiful people? I am Lachlan Samuel, and this is the Open Up Podcast, the show that is making mental health mainstream. The way we do that is we interview people about the deepest, darkest, most traumatic and challenging moments and periods of their life. We go over what they went through, how they overcome it, any tips, tools and tactics that they use to do so, any lessons that they've taken away from that period in their life, and then where they're at now, how they've turned that pain into purpose. All I can say is that I'm just truly, truly grateful. And I absolutely believe that together, me and you, and the sharing of these stories, we will make mental health mainstream. Let's go. Welcome back to the Open Up Podcast, everyone, to episode 103 with Brooke Blurden, a youth worker, mental health advocate. Thank you for taking the time to do this. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. <laughs> um, just so people know, Brooke had to do her makeup because she just come from the beach. <laughs> yeah, I was. I was honestly didn't, didn't expect it. I was like, one of one of those days where you're so lazy. <laughs> nah, it's fine. I put in a bit of effort for you, look. <laughs> um, first question straight off the bat, mm. a bit of a deep one. Could you please describe the way that you view yourself as a woman and or human? How I view myself. Um, I feel like I'm, well, I'm quite small, but I'm pretty strong. I think um, I view myself as quite a small, fierce woman who's super passionate about life. <laughs> yes, I love that because my daughter yesterday mm. was singing and dancing to Beyonce while it was on the TV. Yeah. And all we could hear her saying was, who run the world, girls. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, that is me. That's like my alter ego, Beyonce. Yes. <laughs> or uh, Cardi B on a, one of those, like... Cardi B. Yeah, one of those... What would you call it? I don't know. <laughs> one of those things. Um, all right, so I think your story that you're going to share happens at about... Well, the first one that you're going to share happens at about 11 years old. Could you give us, like, a a breakdown or a summary of your childhood up until that point? Yeah. Um, so I grew up in Carnarvon and it's a bit of a country town um, north of Perth. So not a lot of people, not a huge population, So, but the percentage of the population is Aboriginal, so quite um, cultural. I'd say, you know, I was really heavily involved in my culture. Um, throughout my childhood, we moved around quite a bit, though. So I didn't just stay in Carnarvon. I moved around, like, we came down to Perth. I went up to even Caratha, Port Hedland, Wickham. Missed out on a huge amount of school. Um, so I was always kind of the new girl. Um, and missing out on school, I was kind of a little bit more behind than some students. So I pretty much struggled, I guess, in primary school a little bit. My mum was heavily addicted to drugs and I think that's part of the reason why we moved around um just unstable housing and all that sort of jazz so yeah up to my childhood I really enjoyed though living in Carnarvon like a country town because it I don't know you you, we didn't have iPads or computers or any of that stuff so you could kind of use the backyard you know it was like you know, use your imagination, be creative. So I love that bit about country town and half of it I also lived on a plantation so we grew our own produce and fruit and wow. so, um, you know, that was really that was really cool. That was really insightful, I guess, because my mum, when my mum was good, when she was off the drugs, she had a job and that's what she did and then, you know, she'd get really bad, she'd lose her job and so and then we'd move and, yeah, it was a bit of a cycle but... The good bits living on the plantation were fun. Like, you know, you get to ride on these tractors and um, we would pick fruit for a bit of pocket money and, you know, go down to the local deli and spend it on lollies. <laughs> Nothing, like, productive or <laughs> valuable in any way. But, um, yeah, and then at 11, my 
grandma actually had a stroke in the backyard um, and she didn't quite recover from it. Um, but whilst my grandma was actually sick, my mum suicided and took her own life. Um, so, yeah, we were only – I was only 11, so my brother – had a younger brother who was eight and a younger brother who was just three. So, and I kind of had this like caring role in the family. So when we found out my mum had took her own life, my automatic role was to sort of bring them all together and make sure that they were okay. And then, yeah, I um, unfortunately moved away and had to move away from my family. My my dad's um, actually lives in Perth. And I said to him, like, you know, mum's passed. He didn't actually come to the funeral, but he was, you know, I'll, I'll come get you. So he actually got me, but he could only take me, unfortunately, because he's not the father to my younger brothers. And I moved away from my family and had to start, like, a full new life in Perth, um, new school, new friends. Uh, I was new city, like, Perth's a city classified as, yep. like... A big city, even though it's not big on scale to everywhere else. But um, that was pretty – I think that was pretty overwhelming. I think when I think back to that time, I had no idea what the hell was going on. And then a month into my new life, I'd say, my nana passed away. So, wow. yeah. Pretty... It's a lot, of, a lot of loss in, like, a short amount of time. That's a very compressed version. Um, what if I, you know – if you unpack it all, like, a lot had happened in that, like, couple of months of space of time. Like, I honestly just don't even know how I got through it. As an 11-year-old, I think you you don't have that maturity to actually process it properly. I yeah. think you're just kind of in shock or you're in, like, ro- you know, robotic mode, whatever you, wanna, whatever you wanna call it. Looking back now, like, hindsight, mm. hindsight's a beautiful thing. It's always twenty twenty. Mm. Do you have an understanding of what, what you were thinking at the time because you know I mean a lot of kids that they would view that and a lot of the kids or the people that I've spoken to have lost parents end up, end up taking on beliefs that they're not enough and that's why their parents didn't stay around do you have an idea of how it impacted you? Do you know what's really uh, in my circumstance it's a bit unusual because so when my mum actually took her own life we actually didn't it's funny it was not funny, but we didn't find out then and there. So she collided into another car. Wow. So, so pretty much people would think that it's a car accident. Um, it actually wasn't until years later, and I think that's when I had my own mental health problems, is that I actually got told that it was suicide and our whole family knew but besides us kids. Yeah, so that was hard. That was very – because I had sort of had this, you know, idea that, oh, well, mum died in an accident that, you know, God must have taken her. It was time for her to go or it was um, – like it was an accident. So it was no control that, you know, you know that, that's my mentality at that time. I'm an 11-year-old, 12-year-old, 13-year-old. And then it wasn't until I actually had left school that I'd found out the truth. And that was like, then those confusing feelings come, the resentment, the anger, the hurt, because it's like, well, you purposely left us. You, and all that sort of pain that I had to go through at that time, you know, thinking like blaming, not blaming anyone, but, you know, kind of, and I wasn't very spiritual or religious, but I was like, well, I blame God because he took her away. And then realising that, no, well, my mum chose that and that was her path that she wanted to take. And that was, yeah, that kind of was like a spiral down for me. So where did you go from there? Finding out, I did a ring around and I was, well, I was upset. Um, a, a godmother, grandmother, grandmother, godmother. <laughs> Now, obviously, it sounds super religious. People go, like, (laughs) Um, a woman that had been kind of like a grandmother in our life, and she had told me that my mum chose to do it and she had a plan. And I didn't understand or could really process what that meant at that time. But 
I just honestly just kept thinking like so she left us kids that was my like that was my feeling like that feeling of like she has five beautiful children and she left all of us even the youngest being three um and that played over and over in my head for I'd say honestly like a year and then when I was 19 I was at uni and I remember a lot of things were happening in my life I I moved out of home when I was 15 oh I actually got kicked out of home when I was 15 by my dad so I was kind of an independent minor for about four years you know obviously just having I actually you know had to complete year 11 and 12 as an independent minor like had to do it all myself and then leaving school like finally actually graduating that was a huge thing for me like I was like wow I can't believe I've done this on my own really like partially you know, I don't have mum I don't have really dad I was like a huge thing but still felt so alone like even in that like empowerment stage I still felt so alone and going through that I started you know things were happening I was in a car accident, uh, crashed my car, I was having money problems. I had to work to basically, you know, support myself at home. But then I was missing out on uni, so I was failing because I was trying to fund myself to go on a state trip to play footy because I love footy. Like, there was just so much happening and I could unpack. And I just, I kind of just, like, got to it. I was like, well, life is not for me I was like kind of got to an end but I was like well no one cares about me no one loves me like I'm doing this on my own and you know and I kind of had this feeling of like I'm going to give up um and I had a few attempts none that people knew about and scared the shit out of me um I was in a pretty dark place and then there was this one time where I had a boyfriend at the time and I said to him, like, I'm not feeling well, and I went for a walk. <laughs> he wasn't, I wasn't contactable. And I remember sitting on the train tracks, like that, this stuff that, like, brings up so much pain for me. But, yeah, I remember sitting on the train tracks, like, the next train that comes, like, fuck it. <laughs> Sorry, if you can't, if you can't swear. <laughs> I was just like, no, nah, I'm done. I can understand that, like, considering what you had to go through and finding out that your mum had a plan, like, chose to do it. Mm. It's hard to hear, especially if you went through the grief of losing her and that resentment towards some sort of higher being being for taking her away. Mm. And then knowing that that, like, led to you being split up from your brothers and then having to lose your, your grandmother not too long after. That's a lot to go through. Yeah, it just kind of like felt like I lost like absolutely every avenue for that, like, like culture, family, my mum, my nan. Like I was really close to my nana and I was close to my mum, like, but my mum and I were like two alike that we just clashed. And I'm, people say to me now, like, you're so, you're so like her, like, and I hate that, but I also love it because I feel like, you know, my mannerisms are the same as her and, but I feel like I've made much better choices and for my life and the way that I think she probably would have, but she just got wrapped up in the wrong stuff, you know? So, yeah, so it was really hard. Losing my nana was probably the worst, like. I think we kind of said our final goodbyes before mum passed away and that was a shock for us but then it kind of just like happened like bang 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 like and then nothing I just moved in like you know moved in with my dad which is he's got an English background so I was moved in with a, a white family I had no idea about they had no idea about my culture they didn't understand me I was kind of like the black sheep in the family and even though I'm not like super black or you know but in the inside like that's how I grew up, so... Yeah. Yeah. Do you feel like you fit in? No. No. I remember, like, my dad just kind of having... I had this, like, weird relationship with my dad. I just kind of... I just... I kind of had this ego that I didn't need him. 
And I, I hate to say that and it still has I still have that ego now because I kind of got to a point where I didn't need my dad and it, it sucks for him. But the thing is he didn't really try to be my dad. Like dad is like nurturing. Yeah, like you're a dad. Like you love them, nurture them. And like your role as a dad is to protect, you know, and you want to protect them as much as you can. I just feel like my dad didn't really protect me from anything. He really kind of just left me out to to the sharks <laughs> I don't know how to say that <laughs> yeah yeah so sort of like taking you on because he had to rather than because he wanted like, genuinely to. wanted to yeah that's a hard position to be in like having lost your mum your grandma being taken away from your brothers and then going to a family where you don't fit in to someone who you don't feel genuinely wants you yeah you're not going to feel loved at all so yeah. how can you love yourself that's exactly it, and I think I um when I ref- kind of reflect back now, I sort of think I was definitely felt like an outcast, and for actually it's really um I spoke about this just recently that for two years actually when I moved to Perth I was mute, I actually didn't talk. Well. Yeah, I um I was if I. If people spoke to me, I'd respond and I'd talk to them. And it's funny because I can't stop talking now. But back then, I, I couldn't communicate what I wanted to say in words. And because I was so behind in schooling and learning, I actually was just articulate. I couldn't articulate what I was trying to say. And people – and I remember my dad and my stepmom getting actually really frustrated with me and, like, that added to the feeling of not being wanted because – I wasn't good enough and I wasn't smart enough. You know, I had honestly, like, I can't even imagine how I even got through that time. Like, ha- yeah. having those feelings now, like, it makes me angry, like, thinking you made me feel like that. But, you know, I, I, was, just a little, I was just a little kid. <laughs> I was just trying to get, you know, just trying to learn how to be a kid again. So I can understand how you got to that point where you want to take your life like if you feel like you're not good enough you feel like you're dumb you're not good enough for the people at school you're mute uh, not putting yourself in a position to I guess uh, put yourself out there and possibly face not fitting in again Mm. that's a tough position to be in and that's some of the reason probably one of the biggest reasons for people taking their life is because they feel alone or misunderstood so I, I totally understand how you got to that point. Mm. Yeah. Honestly, like, I thought... But I think, you know what? It's... It's a dark place, that is. Like, it's... I don't... I think that was... Part of me that was rock bottom. And I think now... I always, like, see things in, like, a much more shinier and brighter way because I think that I saw that as my rock bottom and I don't ever want to go back to how I was feeling and how I felt about myself like I just can't think I was so angry at myself and it's so easy to blame everything but when you blame yourself like that's that's hard like you it's like even yeah it's even hard (laughs) so now I'm getting like emotional about it because that pain is like still doesn't sit well with me like it's like can't believe how bad you felt about yourself to even think about that that's a that's an important point though that's powerful Mm. because if you feel that way about yourself no matter how much you try and please everyone around you no matter how proud they are of you yeah if you feel that way about yourself no one else's opinion is going to matter yeah (laughs) no i actually and it's so like even then even then when the someone i was talking about that that dark time and before I had sort of even got to that I was thinking how did I get to that like what was what was the pivotal moment of like where I was like well I'm this is my decision or you know when I decided to do that and I think wow it was actually so petty but I got dropped from a grand final team in Melbourne for playing, like I was playing state footy, but I think it's there's so much under that that kind of like snapped me, like if yeah. that makes sense. Like 
because I had a, a car accident and I was already like so stressed out about money and like living out of home and then you know like failing uni like when I got dropped from this like state team it sounds so petty saying it out loud but well I was, I was thinking about it like I, I think about it all the time but that was just kind of like saying you're like you're not good enough like and that was kind of like the straw that broke the camel's back because there had been a sequence of events that I was like you're not good enough you're not good enough you're not good enough and it just kept going and then that was like no obviously you're saying to me like and that's it's a hard thing as you're like a 19 year old girl like trying to make it in footy (laughs) like yeah you're not good enough okay great cut me from the grand final sweet (laughs) and then you know I'd saved up so much money to go to that trip in Melbourne and my dad was supposed to be there he was living there and you know he said oh he'll make the time to come to the game didn't so that was that level of disappointment and just you know a huge cycle of like so much trauma and abuse just kind of like yeah well did you have anyone you could speak to about any of that i did but it was this huge barrier of talking to them like as if again like you know i feel like a bit shame because it's so petty and like but there's that shame that i couldn't talk to them about it because they wouldn't see it in the same eyes as I would. I do, yep. if that makes sense. Um, I actually had, you know, I was a, I was dating a guy and we had a very toxic relationship throughout that whole process as well. So he didn't understand me. I felt like I could talk to him, but he wouldn't understand to the depth that I probably wanted him to. Um, and I had a teacher, like a teacher that took me in as a 15-year-old because I was homeless and wow. helped me. Yeah, she helped. She actually helped me get through year 11 and 12. Without her, I, I honestly would have been homeless. I don't even know where I would be till now. Um, and because she, yeah, she was like, I'm not going to let you fail. Like, I'm not going to let you drop out. And, yeah, she's one person that I could probably trust. And even, I know even she was freaked out. Like, she didn't know what to do when I, um, yeah, when I was, like, suffering from depression. So where do you go from that point if that's, like, your rock bottom? I don't know where I went. (laughs) (laughs) I don't... I know when all that happened and I had these, these attempts... Um, without people's no knowledge of people like around and um, there was like some something in me saying like this is this is not the life that you should be living and I was kind of like ignoring that I think because I was obviously just like so such in a dark place and I was so much there was so much pain and I was, there was part of me that was like, I seemed like a wish. <laughs> I think there was a part of me that was just like, I want my mum, you know? Yeah. It's like, who's that? <laughs> was there any, knowing that you like held resentment towards a higher being for taking your mum, like when you thought that was the case, mm-hmm. up until you were told otherwise, was there any, resentment towards yourself because you were taking the same path as your mum, knowing how much that had hurt you? I honestly, because that, there probably should have been, but I honestly just had this thought that no one cared. You know, like, you're like, no one cares about you, or no one wants you around, like, no one's reaching out to you, you know, I was, you know, I was writing pretty cryptic statuses on Facebook and, you know, no one, like, there'd be, like, a couple of people that would understand that level of pain that I was kind of, you know, that was, like, a bit of a, a bit of, like, a, not a cry for help because I wouldn't say that, but, but it was kind of, like, my level, like, my reaching out, but 
not a huge response. And it's not a tension thing. Like maybe there was a level of like attention to, hey, I'm really hurting. Like I need help. But not like a cry for attention. It was yeah. just, yeah. Do you, do you know what I mean? I don't yeah, know I if I'm talking. Like, um, to be honest, mm. I went through this with my niece. Like her, um, her going through something similar and her behaviour I felt was like attention seeking, a cry for attention. Um, but looking back now and after everything that she's been through, mm. like hindsight is beautiful because I could see that she was just hurting and that's the only way she felt comfortable like expressing herself or asking yeah for um, so the same thing with you like it's you find these little like avenues or like I don't know because it, it's so I think there's this like um even now <laughs> working in mental health like I know how hard it is just to reach out because I had that problem like I shouldn't just say I'm not feeling well I need help because it was just like this like level of weakness or I was being petty. That's, this is my thing. Like I feel like I'm being petty, you know, because people used to look at me and like think that I, you know, as an 18, 19 year old, like I had it all. Like I was good at footy, I was sport, I was athletic, I was smart, but I had to work hard for those things. Like it didn't come easy. I wasn't smart in primary school, in high school. I had to do a lot of catching up. I dropped, you know, I was homeless. Like, the 11 and 12 was the hardest years of my life. Um, and just to even graduate, like be one of the first in my high school, that was a huge thing for me. But it wasn't celebrated because I didn't have any family around, you know. Like I, there was hardly anyone at my graduation. <laughs> I felt embarrassed and I was even, um, you know, I just felt like no one cared about old Brooke. Yeah. You know, they were just, and she's got everything. She's, she's smart, like, you're, like, you know, being a young, pretty girl, like, you, you don't have any problems, apparently. It's, like, not, it's a stereotype that's, you know, that's... Knowing yeah. that you, like, your dad was supposed to show up to that, that footy tournament, mm-hmm. or their grand final in Melbourne, and then you being dropped, and then him not showing up. Did you ever feel at any point that you were good enough for your dad? I still don't now. Oh, wow. Yeah. I still don't now, but I know that it's my dad's issue. Yeah. And it's not mine. And this, this is taking a lot of therapy and a lot of sessions and a lot of sitting in the chair crying because that, this is that, that feeling. Not good enough. I'll even, no, I won't be good enough for him because, well, really, he, I had this feeling that he didn't want me, so... Um, I personally had to accept like that, that's, I don't have to seek out his acceptance because I have to actually move on with my life. And that was a whole, that was just like holding on to so many other, these other feelings of not, not being good enough. I held on to the same one and not being good enough for my dad. So yeah, I had to learn to let go of that and it still hurts like it's still painful because everyone wants their dad in their life even if you know you know my dad's alive like it feels like I don't even have a mum or dad and that's that's hard to say but yeah for sure so at what point does your life sort of start to turn around and you start taking steps to recover or overcome some of the trauma that you've been through I think it's been I think because when I hit rock bottom at that time, I think I had a huge self, like, reflective. I looked myself once in a mirror and I just cried because I didn't like the way that I looked. I didn't like the way that I was feeling. I don't look at myself like that anymore. (laughs) Like, and I think it's been a huge journey. Like, I've been through numerous psychologists um, you know, people don't know this about me, but, you know, I, I don't connect well with people. Um, I connect, you know, on a face value level, but emotionally and, you know, I didn't, I couldn't connect 
with anyone, um, especially psychologists. So I think from 20, and I'm only 24 now, of the last four years has been a huge self-discovery journey. And um, I think I learned at a young age that I had a responsibility as an older sister, and that's probably what's influenced my hugest, like, yeah, because my brother... My oldest brother, he's embarrassed, but he's, you know, about... He holds a lot of shame about his mental health. Yeah. And I think me talking about it, me being involved with mental health, and um, it actually, I think it's it's starting to help him. And that's, that's sort of my motivation with these things, you know? Like, he, um, yeah, I don't want to get the phone call that he's, like, taking his own life. So that's he's... Well. Yeah. Yeah. Heart centered mission. Yeah. yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. What, how did you give yourself permission as someone who had hit that rock bottom, who felt like they weren't good enough, who felt alone, who just wanted their mum? How did you give yourself permission to go and see a health professional, a psychologist? Because that's scary for a lot of people. Oh, my, hell yeah. <laughs> it is so scary. Um... I think, I don't know if I gave myself permission or if I just said to myself, you do this or you don't, in a way. Like, I don't know if that's the same thing. (laughs) But I realised that I have this little quote that I live by. Boy. (laughs) By. (laughs) Sorry. It's. I think life is for you and it's not against you. And even though everything was happening against me in a way, I was realising that it was actually shaping me and moulding me into the person that I am. And when I started working and telling my story, um, that actually gave me, like, huge power, I think, because I, I could see... Once when I told my story, I was actually working. I was 20 and I was working at a mental health youth service. And it was just an admin job, right? And I, you know, had to pick myself up from that the dark times. And this job came along and I was like, I don't know if I'm ready for it, but I, I did it. I took an opportunity and that's... I'm a very opportunist person. I just... Even though with every crack that has happened, I take an opportunity, whether it, you know, whether I learn from it or I don't like it. Yeah. You either learn from it or you don't. And I took this job and I was telling my story once in front of like 50 people at this work at my workplace. And I think looking around the room and seeing everyone's faces and seeing that they were so... I don't know, just like captivated by it. And so like afterwards I had so much positive, you know, positive response that they're like, you know, you're, you're so courageous, you know, you're telling a story and you're saying it like with true emotion, like that takes a lot of courage. And I found this like kind of power in, in like letting that just like, just letting it go. It is kind of, I don't know if I'm rambling now. <laughs> no, that's right. Like, yeah. And I think people when you're hurting, when you're suffering, you have the assumption that people are going to judge you. Yeah. And it's all going to be negative feedback. People are going to think you're attention-seeking like you thought it might have been. Um, or they're just going to think negatively in general. But yeah. most of, well, more often than not, when you open up, when you share and go to that emotional depth, people are going to commend you for being brave because people want to be that brave themselves. They just haven't given themselves permission. So it's not until someone like you steps up uh, to the plate like that and speaks openly and vulnerably that you, I guess, show them that it's okay to do that. Yeah, I completely agree. That's, you've articulated what I meant to say. Um, yeah. So at what point do you go and see the psychologist? Is it, is it after that? Well, working at this mental health youth service, there are counselling services oh, and right. it's for young people. And I was only young, I was 20. I'm still young. Um... And, you know, I, I saw that 
from the start of the session to the end and I could see how much progress they made and in that time of, you know when they came in they were in such a sorry <laughs> um, you know when they'd come in that first session and seeing them like so fragile and then seeing them at the end of it um, after you know weeks I just love that knowing that they're helping themselves and not just helping themselves but taking that first step and I was like why why am I not doing this for myself and yeah I um I went access to private because I did not obviously <laughs> didn't want to do it at my work um went you know did a private session and that psychologist I did gel with and I felt like it put me off a little bit but then I got recommended you know a different person um and she was lovely and you know I kind of started to unravel and unpack all this crap that I was suppressing so hard like things to the point where like I remember stuff that my brother had said that it really had upset me (laughs) and he I held on to it and I had this you know this anger towards him but like it was like a niggly thing that I I should have just dealt with are you able to say what (laughs) (laughs) so my moving away from my brother like I left in the middle of the night and I didn't say goodbye oh well and that really like the still like it I know it really hurts him and it hurt me and um, I was holding on to that and he always sort of like, he said to me once like, you know, I have an abandonment issues because of you and I was like, it's not because of me, like I was 11, I I had no, you know, and I held on to that and um, (laughs) yeah, him and I joke about it now, like we're like, oh, oh, abandonment issues over here, (laughs) like, you know, but at that time, I remember unpacking all this stuff that I had, you know, held on to, like things from what my dad had said to me, maybe not so much meaning, but stuff like that really was bringing me down and not, you know, and it was hard working in a mental health service, you know, you're like surrounded by it and you have to talk about it and you have to sort of promote um, people into, well, like promote that it's okay to talk you know I wasn't you know I wasn't practicing what I was preaching so that really yeah hit me so I had to do it I just had to bite the bullet and go and it's hard it's really hard it's confronting yeah there's not too much harder than like confronting your own flaws and all the trauma you buried because it's buried for a reason (laughs) (laughs) yeah so it's all coming to surface as well again And I think over time it gets really, I don't know, I now can fluently and happily, I guess, tell my story because I see it as such a power. Like, it's not... I know that... The thing is that even though all this stuff happened to me, it doesn't identify who I really am. It was just circumstances. And your circumstances don't have to define your identity. And, like... Now that I introduce myself, like I see myself as powerful. I don't see myself as like that, like small, broken little young girl. Even though I cry about her sometimes, <laughs> it's just because you you kind of have to put yourself back to that that dark time. Yeah. So, have you been able to, in your mind, grieve like the loss of your mum and your grandma? Yeah. I think my grandma had closure with um, at a funeral. I got to see her at the viewing, and I think I think there's a powerful thing with seeing the actual body. Yeah. Um, I think yeah. I think you come from a New Zealand background. Yeah, so yeah. we're in the same. Yeah, like, you they have stay overnight for like three days or something like that. Yeah, it's. I think that's such a powerful thing with culture. Um, honestly, and I think I had closure with my nan, but I think my mum. There's always this, like, question marks and this confusion still. Um, the reasons what had happened to the lead-up to that. But I think her whole, whole family has had closure with that she was in a very dark place prior to it and we could accept that she, was, she made that decision and, unfortunately, no one could have changed her mind. Um, and I guess... 
you know, it hurt having not known that for so long, but I think it was probably the best thing for me. I think I wasn't in that maturity space. I couldn't probably, couldn't, wouldn't even, wouldn't even be able to process suicide at yeah. 11. Um, and I think I could probably process it a little bit more at 18. And I think that's what comes, you know, being an 18 year old hormonal woman, <laughs> you know, going through some life changes thing. Yeah there's a whole range of feelings that come back and one of them was resentment and anger. But I think I dealt with it. I think lots of therapy. <laughs> I think it definitely was the best thing for you to not know that because one of my best friends mm. through primary school, his, his mother took her life as well. Yeah. I took her life as well. And everyone knew, everyone knew she took her life, but any chance that anyone wanted to pick on him, it was picking on him about his mum. And so, like, in a sense, yes, it sucked that you didn't get to know the truth, but I guess it safeguarded you from possibly being bullied with something like that, which would have mm. been so much more traumatic in itself. Yeah. Have you forgiven your mum? Not that you had to. Have you forgiven her um, for leaving Yeah, I think... One of the actually weird things is that people have come into my life since my mum and then have passed. And one of them is like my pop who actually used to look after my mum when she was younger. And it's a powerful thing. Like he's not blood related, but we just call him pop. But he, and that's, you know, that that journey is another spiritual one and another crazy, you know, how things, the universe happens or works out. But he even said that my mum was the most forgiving person um, even though she had so many things happen to her um, in a way. So I think my thing that I wanted to take of my mum and with me and carry with me was that level of like being able to forgive um, but in a way that it, I don't hold any anger. I just, I don't have energy for it or I don't have, I don't have to carry that. So forgiveness is huge, I think. Yeah, um, that's probably one of my best qualities about my mum that I took on. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. Um, so moving on from there, mm. I really want to talk about, I guess, you being, I'm not too sure, is Aboriginal okay to say? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I identify myself as Aboriginal, yeah. but some people are like, do I call you Indigenous? For me coming over here, like obviously being Māori or being Indigenous back in New Zealand, like there's the same sort of negative stereotypes, but it's really amplified here. Yeah. How how have you gone about navigating that? Has that been a problem at all? Like trying to fit in, especially coming from like being a country girl? Yeah. Well funny you, it's I was always sort of growing up um, in a country town and being actually fairer than some of the other Aboriginal kids. I was called a half caste, yeah. and um, that always kind of meant that you weren't Aboriginal, like you weren't or you weren't Aboriginal enough. So I went through this whole identity thing where I was, didn't think that I was Aboriginal enough and because I felt like an outcast with my white family that I wasn't white enough either. So I always had this thing where, like, I didn't know where I fit in, whether I was Aboriginal, whether I was not, whether I was... Because my mum's also a Malaysian background. Oh, wow. So, you know, I didn't really grow up, grow up with that culture, but I was like, well, where do I fit in this? <laughs> I was like, you know, I didn't know anything about the Malaysian culture. But I think I knew very well that... I identified as Aboriginal and that was my culture and that was what I was really proud of and I didn't find that power in culture until I was probably in high school until I started reading about history and it started to mirror my experiences at home so sort of you know the um (laughs) that was the cat Tommy She's pretty, but she's staying. (laughs) No, um, so yeah, so I, you know, I 
was always so used to being Aboriginal. Like, that's what I grew up with. That's what I was known, you know. Um, but I always got comments like, oh, you're too pretty to be Aboriginal. Um, I got called, when people would find out that I was Aboriginal, they'd call me a bull. I'd got half cast pretty much my whole life. So all these names, I guess, and titles sort of made me feel really conflicted of who I was because I wasn't any of those. I knew that I wasn't any of those. I knew that I was Aboriginal and that's, you know, I was proud. I, was, I actually used to call myself a Yamaji woman because I grew up in Yamaji country. But I didn't later find out that my grandmother was actually from Noongar country. So, yeah, it's kind of weird. Like, And then I got really proud with being a Noongar, Yamaji. So... It's been a journey. That's actually been a huge. That's another aspect of my life is uh, finding my cultural identity and like that's that journey has just been I think so fulfilling for me because it kind of always makes me feel every piece is kind of making me who I am yeah. and restoring really who I am. And I think during my TED talk, that was you know that was me kind of part of me restoring that you know like kind of locking it in in concrete like telling the world that this is who I am and I'm proud to be that it's amazing for me um, I grew up uh, like a city Māori and there's like the rural ones the ones mm. we call them bush Māori and so yeah. like usually they're the ones brought up with the culture really well they speak the language and then if you're not from the bush if you're a city Māori it's sort of similar to you like being outcast in a way yeah. like you don't fit here you're not really Maori. And so for me, instead of doing what you've done and like accept it, I shun the culture entirely, like mm-hmm. until recently. So how have you been, or how did you, I guess, give yourself permission to stand strong in that culture and like mm-hmm. continuously identify? Because I think no one could take it away from me. You know, my mum, you know, she she was an Ongar woman, really, from from she even though she had Malaysian blood um there wasn't a huge emphasis emphasis on that side and she didn't really indulge in it any anyway so we always thought yeah we're Aboriginal and my grandmother that's this is probably where it kind of comes a bit more stronger with because she was a very she was six foot tough woman you know she would <laughs> You know, if you were going to get belted, you would get belted. Like, she wouldn't miss you. Um, but, she, you know, my nana was very proud about culture and she would tell us stories. And I kind of wish that I listened a lot more. I was kind of – I feel now that I've missed out on so much. And um, it comes from her because knowing that they can't take that away from me, that's who I am. And whoever questioned it, I think I'll just put it on them. Like, that's your own issues. If you want to question my cultural identity or my identity, then you have it. Like, you, yeah. you've got a problem. You know, go find yours. <laughs> so, yeah, and that, that, it's, again, been such a huge journey for me. But I think everything that I read, um, everything that, I think just my culture is so beautiful. And this same with New Zealand culture. Like, I play rugby and I absolutely love everything, you know, about other cultures. So I want people to know that mine's just as beautiful as how much I see other people's. And, yeah, I think as much as there's so much trauma, um, intergenerational trauma, I feel like there's such a um, still so much depth to it um, that can be really showcased. Oh, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah. It's beautiful. It is. Um, we've got about 15 minutes left. Yeah. But I really want to touch on your TEDx talk. Yeah. And their process leading into that because, like we said beforehand, public speaking is like the number one fear. Oh, about so, death. so <laughs> yeah. like, what, what was your experience leading into it and during it and how do you feel about it now? Yeah. Um... One thing that's really hard for me is I still hold a little bit of self-doubt. And when I I was asked to do the TEDx, I had that little self-doubt. I was like, I can't do it. Why are you asking me? That's that's literally what I said to them. I was like, why are you asking me? And then I kind of questioned, was it because of my bachelor experience? Was it, you know, because I'm this, this like, you know, I have this huge platform and they want to kind of like, 
jump on that. I, I honestly was questioning so many things and they had to sort of sit me down and tell me like, we want you because, you know, there are so many things that you can give, to, you know, there's so many things you can give to people um, if you want. And it's not like, you know, they were asking me to give like eternal wealth to all these people, but, you know, so many messages that I could send across. And when they put it that way, I was like, okay, all right, cool. So the whole process was 10, 10 weeks lead up to it. And that's pretty stressful because, you know, I work full-time as well. So you have to kind of fit in this, you know, writing the speech, drafting the speech, and there's drafts due every week. So you kind of had to submit a draft every week. And I can honestly say from my first draft to my final, it's the opposite. Like I, <laughs> the points that I were thinking about at the start were not points that I ended up with. And I think that's the whole crazy journey of it all is that it's a really internal and you, you know how we're talking about suppressing those suppressed feelings. Yeah. You really have to bring those suppressed feelings and memories and experiences to the surface. Um, and that can be really emotional. It's like, I, I, I cried the first time, couple of times that I had to read my speech. Um, and then you have to say that I'm getting recorded and in front of a hundred people, it's it's a very unique experience. I, I'm grateful for it, but man, it was it was hard. Like, yeah. What about the nerves? I guess about speaking in front of a crowd in general. For most people, that give them anxiety, make them shudder. Just being <laughs> being fully seen, and especially you sharing the story that you you shared, like being fully seen, like being absolutely vulnerable and being yeah. seeing you, all your flaws and everything. I preach that being vulnerable is powerful because I know through my own experiences. So in my mind, I was saying to myself, okay, being vulnerable, like it's going to help people. It's going to be powerful. Um, your story is going to, you know, it's going to prove to people that you're not just the girl from The Bachelor. You have so much depth and you have substance. And it was kind of like a proving thing, like I was proving myself. But I let go of that feeling because I didn't want to prove anything to them. Yeah. I wanted to actually more share and enlighten them on, you know, that it's not easy. My life wasn't easy. This Doing this TED Talk isn't easy. Um, and the nerves got, really got to me, if I'm being honest, the, the night before I, I was a wreck, like I cried, I couldn't physically get the words out without crying and you freeze, you're in that moment of like, I don't even know what the next word of the sentence is and it's, yeah, it's a difficult process, but I, I honestly can't, it shocks me that I actually did it and got through it um but yeah very internal process how did you feel while you were up there <sighs> honestly afterwards I felt fantastic like I felt on top of the world I still feel on top of the world from it like the the week after I just felt so proud of myself that I had overcome that um it's yeah, it's one of the things that I've wanted to do for years. Like I wrote, actually wrote it down because of Dr. Cat. She said, if you want to do this, you know, write what you want in your life for 10 years or five years or however you want. And I wrote TEDx. And doing that and now knowing that I've ticked it off, I've confronted a fear as well. I feel like I can go talk in front of other people now. <laughs> like it doesn't, you know, anything is so small or minute from that moment. Um yeah, it's, it's a crazy feeling, but it's, it's worth it. It's so worth it. Like, facing your fears, like, directly and, like, in front of, like, yeah, I can't even imagine. Yeah. Do you feel like um, people overplay, I guess, public speaking and what they're going to receive when they do it? Because, like, going mm. through, you'll know when you go through and you do your TEDx talk where you speak in front of a group of people, you have an assumption 
that it's going to be really hard, that people are going to judge you, etc., etc. And then when you go through it, you're like, why the hell was I scared of that? Yeah. Do you feel the same way? Yeah, that was my, one of my biggest fears going into it, is the fear of judgment, that people will um, just see me as one of the speakers and I will say Brooke from The Bachelor and people will be like, well, you know, she's just a girl that, you know, got this huge platform for being on a show. There was this fear of judgment. Like, they're not going to listen to me because they, they're just going to think that I'm this, this and this. And no one had said that. Like, this is my whole mind process that, you know, things that I'm saying to myself in the lead up of this. But the biggest thing was fear of judgment. And I still have to, you know, I still, well, I still care. I think that's the thing is I still care what other people think, even though I say that I don't. <laughs> I still do. Yeah, it's hard not to. Yeah, you know, like, yeah. you want to look your best at all times. You want to do your best at all times. But there is that interview, that, that self-doubt or that, like, imposter syndrome that you're like, you don't deserve this or you're not good enough. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you feel like you limited yourself to that, to Brooke on Bachelor? Yeah, I was. I was limiting myself to that. And um, the night before, I was I was saying that physically out loud. I was like, I can't do this. And my partner was like, no, <laughs> you were doing this. <laughs> And, you know, anything that he said or did, it, it didn't beat that, that thing in my voice, that voice in my head saying, you can't do this. Um, and it wasn't until the next day when I could completely fully recite my speech with my hands behind my back, blindfolded, like whatever, where I was like, I know this speech off my heart. I, can, like I, said, I literally said to myself, I can do this. Is it's going to be a walk in the park? I can do this. And I went out stage. And, yeah, there were moments where I had froze, but I recovered because I was myself. I think that's it's hard doing something that's not you. But if it's yourself and it's you, you can only, yeah, you can only, do, you can only be you. Like, you can't be someone else. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's cool. awesome. I love that. Got a couple questions and we'll wrap up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Knowing everything that you've been through, which is a hell of a lot for, how old did you say, 24? I'm 24, yeah. 24 year old? Yeah. Shit. I'm 25 <laughs> soon, so <laughs> I'm nearly quarter of a century. <laughs> so knowing that you've been through all that and you're still that young, how, what would you say the quality of your life is like now? You know what, quality, if we were putting it in a percentage? If you want to. I'd say... 99.9% because I know that I can always improve. Yeah. That's awesome. That's yeah. a good answer. I feel like I have, you know, being so young, I've just, you know, I have so much that I want to accomplish now um, and so many more people that I want to help. I think that's my, like, you know, I've, I've found a purpose. Life is for me. It's not against me. And I think that's, you know, everything that I do now is either you learn from it or you learn that you hate it. <laughs> It's amazing. Yeah. Um, what have you added to your life or removed from it to improve the quality of it? I removed toxic people, and I think that's a huge thing. Um, you know, we have this this nature of keeping these friends that we feel because they've got yeah. this longevity, you know, been friends with them 10 years or whatever. But if they're not bringing any joy or any love to your life, I feel like that should be... A moment where you kind of readdress those things. So I removed toxic people. Unfortunately, that included my dad. And I think my life now has improved because I let go of those feelings of anger and hurt and, you know, being dragged down. Um, what I brought into my life, good people. Yeah, <laughs> surrounding myself with good people. Um, people that are kind of on my wavelength and, you know, are happy to, you know, communicate how they're feeling to me and... Um, you know, just so happy to be in my vicinity and me also being happy to be surrounded by them. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> what are you most grateful for right now? Grateful? Oh, God, there's so many. <laughs> <laughs> um, I am so grateful in this moment, at this point of time, I'm grateful for living in Perth. I think I absolutely just love living 
Yeah, I think Perth's got great weather. It's fantastic. Unless you want me to give you some cushion. No, that's, <laughs> that's good. I'll go for that. I love the people. I love the yeah. mental health community. Here. I just love the vibe. Yeah. Like you know, we people say, "Oh, we live in a bubble," mm-hmm. but it like if you're in a good bubble, it's it's a really good. Perth's really good. It's a chill city. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, last question. Do you feel good enough now? Yeah, I would say. I, <laughs> it probably looks like I don't say I have confidence, but <laughs> I don't want to be like, oh, yeah, I'm good. <laughs> you know, um, Step into your power. Please do it. You know, I try to stay humble um, and modest. Like, you know, I don't want to approach that I'm modest, but, you know, I know in myself that I'm good enough. And... It was a long, like a bit of a long journey to to loving yourself completely, but I would say that I, I love myself. That's amazing, yeah. and I think you getting rid of toxic people, especially like people like your dad who are really close, shows that you feel like you're good enough. Yeah, self worth. Agree. Awesome. Uh, to wrap up, I want to acknowledge you first of all for making it here, for making time for this. Thanks. I know you're busy. You've got a lot of things on your plate, so I absolutely appreciate it. I appreciate you for being here. But most of all, for being someone with your platform, with your experiences, taking that and sharing that on your platform, that's, that's powerful, it's amazing, and you're just going to continue to positively impact you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I actually loved it. Thank you for having me. Honestly, it, yeah, it means a lot that you even thought about me being on your podcast. Yes. Leadership Through Growth with Brendan Usher is specifically designed for middle managers and focuses on three key areas, those being people, vision, and self. Now, this is tailored to suit those middle managers to turn you from that manager into a leader to accelerate your career growth.